You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Kyla, every time we record together in the office, I always think, oh, this is going to be the start of us recording together in the office all the time. And, you know, I'm optimistic and looking forward to it. And here we are, you know, once again, it's Friday, it's podcast day, and um, we're not together in the podcast studio. Sorry, I have court. It's, uh, it's, it's tough. It, it's it being a lawyer. Tough to be, it's tough to be a bug what's the the that's a uh disneyland ride <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore what? is that a bug's life no it's tough to be a bug it's not like a ride it's like a show at disney world oh well i've never been to disney world so you can just flex about disney world i've never been there flexing my d-dub okay yep. um so i read a very interesting <laughs> that you know despite the like favorable outcome i was quite surprised on the legal analysis of from our court of appeal yes uh i started reading it i haven't read the whole thing through i read the summary of it um our court of appeal often leaves me baffled so <laughs> as others have pointed out uh Two-thirds of the time, if you manage to appeal from the BC Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, it is then overturned. Um, so what do we have? So this is the case of Thomas. And Thomas was uh, Anthony Thomas. Um, he was charged with, uh, this was actually in my, in my hometown, um, people I grew up with. Um, he was charged with impaired operation, having an impermissible concentration of methamphetamine um, in his uh, blood after a motor vehicle accident that uh, unfortunately killed somebody and catastrophically injured another person, um, and dangerous driving, causing death and bodily harm. So serious charges. And he ended up convicted mm -hmm. of all of them. Uh, he didn't testify at trial. The... Um, a trial judge accepted uh, the evidence and found that he was responsible um, and his driving uh, conduct uh, was enough to amount to dangerousness on the basis of his impairment. So even though his like actual manner of operating the vehicle itself was um, was not necessarily dangerous, like he was unconscious, so he, you know, he didn't deliberately drive the vehicle that way and his unconsciousness was caused by his use of drugs um even though uh that was the finding that the essential conclusion was that he uh was driving dangerously because he was driving impaired so it relied on the facts of one of the convictions to ground the other conviction and we see this often in impaired driving cases where we see people who are driving at um, like an impermissible blood alcohol concentration and that is the evidence of the driving that leads to a conviction also for dangerousness because it is inherently dangerous to drive over 80. 
the difference here in this case was that the driving was fine up until the moment when he fell asleep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the question arose on appeal. Well, there were a number of grounds of appeal, most of which did not succeed. But one thing arose in relation to whether or not Mr. Thomas should have had convictions registered for all of those offenses. Because what happens when you're charged with impaired operation, if it's impairment and your blood alcohol concentration is also over the limit, and I know you know this, um, there's a principle called the Kynapple principle. It comes from the case of Kynapple. And if the same conduct that forms the basis for one conviction forms the basis for another conviction, then you can only be actually convicted of one of those offenses. So a judge will enter what's known as a conditional judicial stay for one of the charges, and you're only sentenced for the remainder. Now, the the thing about that is if one of those, if that matter is appealed uh, and the, the uh, matter for which you the conviction was registered is overturned, uh, the, the stay on the other one would therefore likely be automatically lifted depending on the circumstances, right? Depending on what was appealed and, you know, and, it might succeed on one point and not on the other. Um, but it's really a double jeopardy thing, um, or at least that's how we commonly describe it, um, yeah, because it's two offenses and it's one act. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh more, I always describe it to, uh, to uh, junior lawyers because nobody knows Kynapple when they come out of law school. Uh, you know, if you convict, if you kill somebody and you kill one person, it might be manslaughter, second degree murder, first degree murder, but you can't be convicted of three offenses for killing one person. It's also an assault. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, yeah. So this is the issue that arose at the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal essentially said that a conditional stay should have also been entered on the dangerous driving charge because the reason that the trial judge found that the driving was dangerous was because of the impairment. Yes, so you were talking about um, the double jeopardy principle and the impairment uh, forming the basis of the conviction in this case. Well, sure. I mean, there's no dangerous driving before the you know individual falls asleep, and he falls asleep because of his impairment. Um, and the whole idea of criminalizing impairment is to stop people from being a threat on the road, right? So, I mean, it makes sense that it should be one offense if you're impaired, or if you drive dangerously and you're not impaired, then that's something else. And and dangerously. You know, in many circumstances, uh, you know, they're going to look at a pattern of behavior as opposed to just the one-off, although we've seen, a, you know, movement to the one-off. So I guess you can forgive the judge for for um, sort of misinterpreting it here. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is it used to be a circumstance where a dangerous driving conviction would almost only ever flow when you could see, you know, a, a description of bad driving for a, a period, extended period, I don't know, like a... a more than more than mere seconds, uh, but now it's uh, it seems to be moving to a circumstance where even the slightest mistake you make um, can can lead to a, a dangerous driving conviction. You definitely see dangerous driving charges laid now in cases where previously it would just be a drive without due care. Um, yeah, and I think they've been they've been um, you know prosecutors looking at it have, are have 
taken this position as a result of, you know, circumstances like the speeding offense that led to a, a dangerous driving causing death conviction here in Vancouver. Uh, again, the courts had moved away from that over the decades. Uh, if you go back far enough, that was, you know, probably not a incorrect interpretation of the law, but they moved away from that for various reasons. And now the pendulum is swinging. Yes. So the court ultimately does its analysis in the case beginning at paragraph 82. Um, and they look at the facts found by the trial judge rather than the legal authorities, which was that the eyewitness evidence was that he was driving normally with the speed of traffic, slightly over the speed limit, but of course everybody does that, uh, with no apparent swerving, no other erratic behavior until he suddenly and unexpectedly lost consciousness. And when he regained consciousness, he was bouncing over the boulders along the shoulder of the road, applied his brakes, but was not able to um, regain control of the car. Um, and uh, it's this sort of automatism that um, is the uh, is both the actus reus and the mens rea, effectively, of, of the dangerous driving. Um, and the court, uh, at paragraph 83, says, in this sense, um, this case is similar to Colby, where a singular act, i.e. the decision to proceed after the first accident, gave rise to two charges, impaired and dangerous driving. Here, as in Colby, the delict that founded the conviction for dangerous driving causing death was the same wrongful effect that founded uh, the impaired driving count. There were no additional distinguishing factors of one count as compared to the other. The result would have been different if Mr. Thomas had, well conscious, crossed the median of the highway and gone onto the shoulder. So that's the distinguishing factor. But it still surprises me because I was always under the impression that the Kynapple principle did not apply where the essential elements of the offense were different. I think they're looking at the wrong um, at why the parliament made the decision to make a certain thing the wrong. And the act here ultimately is the driving. Uh, and it's driving in a, in a circumstance where you, your capacity is is uh, compromised as a result of impairment or just you drive badly. Um, and it's, I suppose, two different things, but ultimately it's the it's the threat. It's the one threat they're looking at. But yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so, why I was like the, element, the elements of the offense are different, very different. Yeah. And the court then at paragraph 85 or 84 does note this, but they say that essentially the element of dangerousness um, they say the uh, his impairment created a reasonably foreseeable danger that became manifest when he lost consciousness because of that impairment. Thus, paraphrasing Prince, the element of impairment was the crucial element of both his impaired driving and his dangerous driving convictions. It was the fact of the impairment that made his decision taken after the first accident to continue driving dangerous. In the particular circumstances of this case, that element was substantially the same in both offenses. So it sounds like what the Court of Appeal is saying is that you can actually, even if the essential elements in the wording of the law are different, if the essential elements are met by the same action, then that constitutes a circumstance in which Kynapple would apply. Which is an interesting clarification in the law. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, the, I think the way that I would just 
justify that would be the fact that impaired driving um, in itself is not necessarily dangerous, right? You can drive home impaired or overweight and get home safely. Um, it's only circumstances where there's an accident that it becomes dangerous. So in that sense, we know that overweight or at or over 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters is a, a per se limit, uh, as they say in the U.S., and so it's a, a statutory offense where there are people who are, you know, particularly some women I've known over the years who can be over 80 milligrams and are, are fine, right? Not impaired. Um, and so because this is a, an issue of evidence is what really they're prohibiting. If there is evidence of this, of impairment, evidence of being at or over 80 milligrams, that is why you've committed the offense. But the actual issue is in a dangerous driving case is you created a risk. And in fact, in this case, you know, the risk led to deaths. And yeah. so we can skip beyond these per se limits or, you know, uh, um, justification of just you are impaired or there's impaired in your ability to operate a motor vehicle. We can skip beyond those evidentiary things and go right to the the damage that's caused. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I just, you know, I, I was surprised. I was surprised at the outcome. I mean, but fundamentally, it doesn't really change much because I don't think his sentence is going to be any different at the end of the day. Like, he goes back and he gets sentenced for one offense, or I guess two offenses, the bodily harm and the death, instead of being sentenced for two bodily harm dangerous and impaired and two deaths dangerous and impaired yeah does it is it going to substantially change what what he's getting probably not no it's not going to change anything here i mean in the end it's a the total fearic victory for the guy that he's partially successful on the appeal yeah. i mean when i look at the decision my problem is this same thing that i complain about privately and that is there's all sorts of other reasonable inferences that could flow and they're just rejected by the court. And when I look at that, I always think to myself, well, hang on, it's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And like, in my view, a intellectually honest assessment of it would have raised a doubt, um, about the impairment, but, um, and is, uh, one of the reasons why I would not be a judge because I would be acquitting more people because I would find a doubt in my mind. And a lot of these things that I look at that are, I think are reasonable inference are just disregarded by the court. Yeah. It seems to be a more common thing than it was when I first started practicing a, a much more common thing. Actually, it's kind of like we've moved from beyond the reasonable doubt to probably you did it. Yeah. It does feel that way. Um, okay, so let's move on to maybe somebody who gets to be acquitted. <laughs> uh, and this is a court case out of Saskatchewan. Um, first case of 2024, I'm pretty sure, that follows the Bro decision from the Supreme Court of Canada on immediacy in ASD demands um, and ASD testing. And an important case because it's also one of the first cases of which I'm aware that has actually considered the analysis in Bro as to whether something constituted an unusual circumstance that would justify delay. Um, and it's something that we see 
so often in these types of cases, which is an officer doesn't make the ASD demand after forming suspicion or after stopping the person if it's mandatory demand because they are spending time to verify the person's identity. Or any other thing after they've decided that they're going to do it. Sure. Um, like, any, any, but, you know, like, but the 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 I spent five minutes waiting to see your your identification, running your name, checking your license status is a common justification that we see. It is, and and yes, you're right. This decision, uh, it's I mean, interesting, good decision. I'm glad to see it, um, but it's surprising to me that we are what 2018. The law was passed. We're now at. 20 to uh, five and years and a couple months since the legislation was changed. And we don't have a lot of decisions on it. Yeah. You know, the, the federal government stuck in the word immediately where it used to say forthwith. And the purpose of this should probably be fleshed out for people who are not impaired driving lawyers. Um, we've talked about it a bit, but yes, we have talked about it a bit, but the point here is that in your, your, your right to counsel, which you have upon detention is suspended when a police officer is using an uh, approved screening device. And in everywhere, at least my understanding, outside of BC, they're not going to use the approved screening dis uh, device results for anything other than to justify further detention and some other steps for investigation. Whereas in BC, of course, you're punished on the basis of that uh, approved screening device result if you are issued an uh, IRP. Uh, but the point is the 10B suspension... Um, you know, it's a warrantless search. Uh, it is a search that is only permissible because it's authorized by law. The law is the criminal code. The criminal code said it must be immediately. That is the only way that they can get around the 10B violation. Your right to counsel is violated in every one of those cases. And so it used to say forthwith, um, as uh, was dealt with in the uh, Bureau case 2023 SEC9. Um, and of course, now we've had five years of it being immediate, which arguably is more forceful than forthwith, although the courts have interpreted forthwith as immediately. Um, and now we're finally seeing some cases dealing with it. Yeah. And so the Crown essentially argued, and they won this at trial, and um, Mr. Uh, McCorriston, the case is called McCorriston, it is 2024 SKCA5, um, he won at trial, uh, lost at trial, was convicted, appealed, won the appeal, and then it went to the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, um, the Crown, trying to reinstate the conviction, saying essentially, the officer, um, the officer was entitled to check his history, and you know, officer safety is so paramount. We have to, we have to give the officer uh, the the ability to make sure they know who they're dealing with. Sure violate somebody's charter rights further to yeah. find out, check their background on their computer system. Paragraph 22, the bare facts of the case. So police officer stops Mr. McCorriston. He's got an unregistered vehicle. After he conducts the traffic stop, he stays in his police car for two minutes and 18 seconds, and he's running computer checks and updating dispatch that he's, you know, conducted a traffic stop, goes up to Mr. McCorriston and very quickly forms a suspicion that Mr. McCorriston has alcohol in his body. Then he says, hang tight for a second and walks back to his police vehicle. And he's in the police vehicle for a few minutes. 
And during the time in the police vehicle, he's getting the ESD, setting it up, getting it ready, and also doing computer background checks on Mr. McCorriston. And when the officer returns, he pauses for an additional minute or less, waiting for Mr. McCorriston to end the call on his phone and then reads the ASD demand. And the time frame that the court ultimately determines is um, how much time has passed from the officer forming the suspicion to making the demand is five minutes. That's it. Four minutes in the patrol car and then about a minute at the vehicle once Mr. McCorston is on the phone. And Mr. McCorston, very smart. I'm sure he was on the phone with a lawyer because he tells the officer, I'm not going to comply. Too much time has passed. Love it. I love it. Um, And so he he says, no, he's not going to do the ASD uh, test. And the question is whether or not he is uh, he is guilty. And the court says, um, the Court of Appeal says, yeah, he should be acquitted. The the result is that in the circumstances, the officer was doing something that was completely not necessary. And it's paragraph 26 where the court does their their analysis. And they say that um, uh, the super. Uh, Supreme or Summary Conviction Appeal Court judge did not err that the circumstances of the case, background checks conducted in the circumstances of that case did not present an unusual circumstance warranting a flexible interpretation of the word immediately. It was consistent with the Supreme Court's rejection of considerations of practical efficiency constituting an unusual circumstance. And this is really just a practical efficiency. Knowing who he is did not have to happen before the ASD demand. The court does say, yeah, there are going to be some circumstances where a background check might be an unusual circumstance, but this was not one of them. And I think not could, ruling it out. Yeah, it out. because you could, you know, if the person you think about, like the the free men on the land, right? The the natural sovereign citizen nonsense, where they start yelling that you don't have the authority to do this, and you know, making threats or or implied threats. It might be that might give rise to a legitimate officer safety concern. But he stopped this car because it was unregistered, meaning he'd already run the plate, meaning he already knew information about Mr. McCorriston. So he didn't need the background check to protect himself. He'd run the plate. Um, you have somebody there who's threatening. If you have somebody there who you you seem to recall that you've maybe dealt with before and they were, you know, a, a person who had... had um, posed a risk or was known to be a violent person, that might be different. Um, I don't know that you would run a background. You'd probably call for backup. Uh, but still like an ASD demand is not like a, uh, is not going to trigger most people. Like it's not, it's not like, it's not, it's not an arrest, right? It's not a, it's just asking for a person to, to provide a sample. And the court has said, this is relatively non-intrusive. I don't necessarily agree with that interpretation, but in these yeah. circumstances, where's the where is the justification for it? There isn't one, and that's what the court concludes. Yeah, exactly. part of the reason we ended up here, though, I mean, this should have been obvious, I think, to most people. But if you go back to <clears throat> the Supreme Court of Canada's decision, that was uh, Justice uh, Fish, I think, wrote it um, in Woods. The language there was a little bit sloppy. 
2005 Supreme Court 42. I just see the citation here. And it made it sound like it was just like, well, you know, if there's something, you can delay it. And that's wrong. You know, it was, I don't think that was the intention of what the court wanted to convey in that decision, but it's, it's led to years of litigation that was unnecessary. Yep. Okay. Um, I, I yeah. You, you accept my point? I accept your point. I don't know that I would call a language in Woods sloppy. I think the interpretation of Woods following the decision was sloppy, but that's, that's a, well, I, you know, go back to, go back to Woods and read the whole thing and tell me what you think. I mean, I, I agreed ultimately with the decision on it, but I just felt that it was, uh, it, it left open too much for interpretation. Okay. Yeah. It didn't stick with the words that had normally been used in that context. And that's why I say the interpretive exercise after Woods what was, was what was sloppy. But I think you and I are saying the same thing in different ways. Well, I phoned the Supreme Court of Canada when Woods came out. Did you really? I did. I phoned them and said, this line is is misquoting something and you guys should fix it and bring it to his attention because you can always issue a change to it. Or, or agenda? Yep. And uh, I can't remember what the line was, but it was something that I thought this is just going to create chaos and I'm not going to write it down and email you. I'm phoning you. And I managed to get some somebody on the line. It was like a, uh, a clerk or someone like that. I phoned them. Why well, on didn't, didn't make a change, I but the court and be as a lawyer, just phone the court and be like, "Your judgment's wrong." <laughs> well, I've you know sometimes see judges at parties and I tell them that they're wrong. Yeah, um, I am the, uh, far more tactful. I just say it in court and submissions. But yeah, but that's wrong, Your Honor. So don't follow it. Um, well, I often tell the superintendent of motor vehicles that they're wrong. Anyway, okay. The last thing I want to point out just from the McCorist and Keith, before we move on to your favorite part of the podcast, Paul, is that it seems like this Saskatchewan Court of Appeal is not just saying that, like, it's only unusual circumstances that um, uh, that relate to, um, that will justify delay, but they go one step further in paragraph 26, and they say that the unusual circumstances also have to directly relate to the use of the ASD or the reliability of the result. So it's not just that something weird happened. It's that something weird happened directly related to the device, which arguably could be said to say it's not justified to do background checks unless those background checks are related to the reliability of the result or the use of the ASD. And I, it's not clear to me what circumstances would reveal themselves in a background check, but I guess if you had somebody with a uh, who asserted a medical condition and you ran a background check to see if this had happened in the past or something like that. I, I um, still doesn't justify the delay in reading the demand, right? Yeah. And we see that with some regularity. Police officers will delay just because they want to put more time in between the time they pull the person over and the time they take the test because they think it's going to be a more reliable test. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll order a person to take the gum out of their mouth, but they won't make a demand. Um, and then they'll wait five minutes or seven minutes and make a demand. And I think that completely is, um, has been, you've, you and I have taken the position that that's wrong. And paragraph 26 of this case is very clear about it. And the only last thing, if I may have one last word about it, this really just affirms the analysis in Regina and Schmidt, uh, the decision of Judge Cousins from uh, 
uh, it's not Regina, I guess, Rex and Schmidt, but the j- decision of Judge Cousins sitting in um, in uh, Whitehorse, I think, um, where he did a, a very similar analysis and said, look, you're, you know, get on it. It's immediate. Yep. Even in the often dynamic nature of policing, it's not that hard. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. I wanted to move on, Paul, because it's time. We've been waiting all week. For the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Yay. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Um, So this is a case in Michigan. Uh, I feel like this is the type of thing that could only happen in the U.S. An uh, Amish person um family uh rode their horse and buggy to a walmart in michigan parked it i guess outside and while they were shopping in the store some woman who was staying at a motel nearby got in the buggy and rode it off stole the buggy stole the horses just took it is that a driver I guess it is a driver. How, uh, what? Who knows how to just like get in a buggy and drive it away? I mean, a, a, did, and did they lock it? I'm sure the police are probably lecturing these Amish people for not locking their horse and buggy. Yeah. Well, you know, you've got to lock your horse and buggy if you know. Well, if you look at in the U.S., it is effectively treated as a motor vehicle in the sense that in many U.S. states, we've seen cases where Amish people have been uh, or or just random farm people have been um charged with dui for being drunk while riding their buggy with their horse so i think it's stupid to me because really the horse is the one in charge my horse is sober officer you're just basically asking the horse the horse is like the taxi driver you're like the passenger you're just asking the horse where to go the horse makes many of the decisions but reading this reading this case i am surprised at one thing and that's that we don't we don't see more stolen Amish buggy cases for some reason. Well, yeah, especially when you know that they aren't locked up. Um, I wonder how they just tie their horses up at Walmart if the Walmart's got a, like a, a hitching post. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody's a fixing to steal your horse and buggy. You got to do something about it there. I mean, this is, this is America. Um, but yeah, I, do you, any idea how far she went with this thing or? Uh, to a nearby motel and then like kept the horse and buggy there and I guess just went into her motel room. So it wasn't exactly a master plan or anything like that. They got a hitching post at the hotel as well. <laughs> they they got a stable in the back. <laughs> the police put out a bolo for a horse and buggy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. The, right. uh, may- maybe that motel has a, uh, has its own barn in the back and its own stable. Yeah, somebody be. working there somebody working in the stable at the motel stable work yeah fairly stable uh-huh. uh so, anyway that's our podcast <laughs> if you uh stole a horse and buggy <laughs> or you have another driving law related issue that you need to reach us about 
You can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Yeah.